Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. Today, we welcome to the show the original traveling geologist himself, the OTG, Dr. Christopher Spencer. Spencer is the head of the Tectonochemistry and Geodynamics Group at Queen's University in Canada. His research focus is broad and diverse, including understanding the formation, destruction, and secular evolution of the continental crust. But you might know him from his contributions to science outreach in geosciences, especially through his initiative, Traveling Geologists, where he and many other geologists share their various fieldwork experience and research. He also produces and hosts two other podcasts within the Geology Podcast Network, Geological Expeditions of Yore and Backyard Geology. Go check them out! Having conducted fieldwork in almost every continent in the world, I would say he is an authority when it comes to the subject. I wonder if he has any crazy fieldwork stories to share with us. Let's find out! Here is Spencer. Hey Vitor, how are you doing? Hey Spencer, welcome to the show, it's great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, and I love the uh, the moniker Dr. B. It uh, it fits you very well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's just a result of uh, people's struggles to pronounce my name, so I just uh, just went with Dr. B. Make That's things awesome. easier. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you and I we've spent so many hours talking about a bunch of different things from very deep scientific questions all the way to your days as a hunter-gatherer in Utah. But I'm so excited to ask you a bunch of questions that I've never asked before about, you know, fieldwork and traveling geologists. So, yeah, thanks for agreeing to have this to having this chat. Yeah, no worries. I'm excited. So I always like to kick things off with a little game to break the ice. And this week I've prepared for you a game that I call Sample, Hammer or Curate. So let me explain to you the rules. This is a play on the traditional game Kiss, Marry, Kill. I'll give you three options, and then from these three, you will have to choose one option that you would sample, uh, one option that you wouldn't mind hammering away in order to get to the good bits, and then finally, something that you would want to curate to your little collection. And I mean, we all know how much geologists love to have their personal little rock and mineral collections. I mean, I know I have mine back in Brazil. And this is basically a list from least to most favorite. Are you up for it? Let's do it. Okay, so which would you sample, hammer, or curate? Metamorphic, igneous, or sedimentary rocks? Sample sedimentary, hammer, igneous, and curate metamorphic. Oh man, I knew you'd choose metamorphic. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's the, the, the part of uh, geology that I struggle with the most. Uh, I think I've never understood the the reactions, you know, that's it. Well, you know what, it's probably, you're no different than me. 
uh, I just think metamorphic rocks are the prettiest. And therefore, if I'm going to curate, <laughs> if I'm going to put it on my shelf, I want it to be pretty. Yeah, but man, if you get like a really, really nice sedimentary structure in a little sample. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and I guess what's funny about both you and I is we don't really work with just one rock type at all. We kind of work with every rock type. And so if you look at what I actually have on my shelf today, you'll see metamorphic rocks, sedimentary rocks, and igneous rocks. Yeah, I definitely dip my toes in all these different pools. So um, anyway, this one is a bit tricky because no matter what you answer, you're probably going to upset, you know, um, two thirds of the of the uh, listeners. Uh, let's try another one. Sample, hammer or curate? Wet boots, no battery on GPS or a flat tire on the field? Right. So I'm wanting to say what I want least. Yeah, that's it. Um, I want least wet boots. And so I guess sample wet boots. No, sorry, hammer. Okay, wet it would be boots. hammer wet boots, and uh, and then I guess my next would be dead battery on the GPS, and yeah. then the one right. So sample. So then the one that I'm probably um, most willing to deal with is a flat tire because I feel like I can fix a flat oh. tire. <laughs> right, right, right. That's that's good. Um, I would probably go with curate no battery on the GPS just because I flatter myself as a very um, good like navigator, yeah. you know, so I think I could get away right. with it. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe if I didn't have a map or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, next one. Sample, hammer or curate? Rift, subduction or cratons? Ooh. Uh, I'd say sample cratons, hammer, rifts, and curate subduction. All right. That's, I mean, yeah, this one, I don't really have an argument against. <laughs> so the final one is, do you uh, hammer, sample, or curate kyanite, silimonite, or andelazite? Oh my goodness. That's hard. All right. I'll say <laughs> I'd sample andalusite, hammer, silimonite, and curate kyanite. Oh man, hammer silimonite, oh, you can't handle temperature. That's hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a tricky one. I think I would pick um kyanite to curate. Yeah. And the reason is because um back where I'm from in Brazil in Jamanchina, we have these like um these really big crystals of kyanite mm. that uh, crystallize next to quartz okay. veins and they're just like gorgeous and like really really wow. blue. And man, I've, I've always loved them and I have so many in my little rock collection back home. So yeah, that, that's, that's the one and I pick because I've actually curated it. And so. for me, it was almost the complete opposite because I did not ever see kyanite until I was a master's student in, in the Himalaya. And so we have a couple of locations where there's andalusite and silimonite in Utah where I did my undergrad. But I don't even think we had kyanite in the mineral collections that we that we had uh, in in Utah, and uh, and it wasn't until I got to the Himalayas and I saw this these beautiful blue minerals. It's like, hey, that must be kyanite. Did I just hear Spencer say that he would rank sedimentary rocks in last place? The nerve! If like me you cannot condone this absurd statement, then please voice your concerns on my Twitter at geodoctorb. That is. G-E-O-D-R-B. And while you're at it, follow me to stay up to date on future episode releases. 
If you actually agree with Spencer and you're deeply concerned about the gap in knowledge that I have on metamorphic rocks, please share your view with us too. Now let's get back to the show. I imagine that given the relationship between traveling geologists and the Geology Podcast Network, a few of our listeners are probably familiar with the work that you do in the platform, but they might not be aware of some of the things that go on behind the curtain. But um, before we get into the director's cut explanation of traveling geologists, can you explain briefly what is Traveling Geologist, just in case some of our listeners are not familiar with the initiative? Sure. So um, I guess Traveling Geologist started as an initiative for my mother. And uh, I was a PhD student at the time, um, living in Scotland, very far away from home. And my mother uh, would hear that I was going to Norway and to Labrador, and uh, and I was doing all this field work, and she had no idea where I was at any given time. And so she said, I just want to know where you're at. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to start a blog um, specifically just to tell my mother where I'm at and what I'm doing. And uh, my mother, she was the reason why I uh, became a geologist. Uh, my mother was an elementary science teacher and uh, and was always filling my head with with facts about science and all and so, um, so I started traveling geologists specifically with that in mind, but then um, it started growing because other people also wanted to share their stories on the platform, and it got to the point where I figured that this was something that would be useful for more than just my mother, and so, and so we've expanded the platform now to where traveling geologists acts as a platform on which. Earth scientists can share their adventures and their discoveries um, in a in a simple way, so that you so that we can not only inform the general public of the cool things that are going on and the adventures that Earth scientists have, but also with the aim of inspiring the next generation of Earth scientists. Right. So it went from an excuse to share field pictures into an actual, you know important tool for science outreach and the popularization of geology, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I, I, I'm, I'm really proud with how things have grown and have changed. And we, we currently have a team of over 15 people working with traveling geologists. And we, through the various social media platforms and, uh, and the website, we reach over a million people. In, wow. uh, and, and last, last I checked, we were in over 150 countries. Um, wow, that's and so it's... Man. Yeah, it's, it's been a really humbling experience to see how the, the platform has grown. Right. And how many people have contributed to the blog or the social media pages over the years? Do you have a... So I, I, I'm, I'm going to get the number wrong off the top of my head, but it's something like we have uh, over 200 different contributions from, uh, I guess it would be at least 150 different contributors um, from dozens of countries. Uh, we, in addition to having all of these different contributors, we've also had articles written in seven different languages. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, it's exciting to see how this can go beyond even just like the English-speaking world, but rather we have articles being written by Brazilian geoscientists transferred, uh, translated into Portuguese, uh, Mexican geoscientists translated into, uh, into Spanish, Chinese geoscientists translated into Chinese. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's really exciting to see how, how far we can push this. Yeah, that's very cool because I think that it's, um, it showcases the value of you know, a large and diverse network and, and, you know, creating diversity uh, in, in the scientific field and in, and in geology itself. Yeah. 
Uh, I have recently reviewed a manuscript that was uh, submitted by a single author. And I mean, there is nothing wrong with conducting research by yourself. But in this particular case, both the content and the quality of the manuscript, it would have been much better presented if you had involved co-authors. Having you know, an input from different set of eyes is a great advantage to, to high quality geoscience research, in my opinion. And I find it a bit silly that, uh, that some people still find pride in struggling through you know, producing research on their own, just so that they can claim self-sufficiency. When it seems like it's more um, significant and so much more could be accomplished if you work as a team. And, and I think that in this regard, traveling geologists plays a major role in demonstrating the importance of collaboration, communication, and also mirroring the importance of these values uh, to the research community um, of the modern world. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think um, I, I actually just uh, this year published my first and only um, single author paper. And although I... Uh, I'm very pleased with the work that that I had published. Um, I cannot deny that that work um, would have been benefited by having some co-authors, and that the the work that I've done with numerous co-authors uh, definitely it, it definitely carries a great deal of added value because of the the added expertise and perspectives that the other geoscientists have. Um, I think oftentimes we tend to look at papers that have 20 or 25 authors and think that, oh, there's no way that those authors would have had a, a real tangible contribution. But uh, in fact, the very first um, research projects that I was involved with was with the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, and the uh, Cassini spacecraft team. And, uh, and I'm, I'm on a paper, this was when I was an undergrad, I'm on a paper where there are 16 authors on this paper. And when I go back through the paper and I look at what the contributions were of each one of those authors, um, each one of those authors really did have a substantial input into the paper. And the paper is significantly, the, the paper is significantly better because those authors, um, each provided their their individual contributions. And so when applied to science outreach, I think that the importance for collaboration is only um, magnified because it is it is only through the shared experience of the geoscience community that we can reach the widest group of people. Because the way that I will try to uh, reach a... a, a the way that I will approach science outreach will be directly controlled by my worldview and my experience and the way that you will um, chase up uh, science outreach endeavors will be will be controlled by your experience and, and your worldview. And therefore, with our efforts combined, we will be able to reach a, a wider swath of, of the general public. Yeah, and... Um... You know, when I was an undergrad, I always would love when the professors used uh, amazing examples from real locations to explain to us uh, geological processes. And mm -hmm. so I've always had like, you know, at the back of my mind, this idea that I should have, you know, um, a backlog of kind of 
places I visited and, and you know, this, uh, this um, catalog of examples that I could use uh, if I were ever to, to teach a course. And I guess in a way, you know, traveling geologists uh, would help me with that because now all of a sudden, you know, I don't need to necessarily visit all those locations, even though I wish I, I could. But, but I can also rely on shared experiences that other scientists around the globe are providing through this very, you know, accessible and easygoing platform. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm glad to hear you say that because that, that really is one of the overarching missions of Traveling Geologist is to take this shared body of knowledge and to share not only the scientific information and the scientific discoveries that we have made, but also the personal narratives and and the the opportunities that we have to share our stories and, and our connection with not only the science, but also the earth on a deeper level. And I think, especially when we're dealing with situations like um, global climate change, um, it's really important that we see ourselves not only as earth scientists, but also as earth stewards. And and I think that the the greater exposure that students and the general public can have to the diversity of, of the geology on the planet, but also the diversity of experiences that earth scientists have, we can we can develop greater empathy for um, earth stewardship and, and can uh, be more dedicated to the cause. Right. And, you know, if I want to contribute to traveling geologists, um, you know, let's say I have some interesting adventures to share. How, how can I do that? Well, the, uh, the easiest way is to just go to travelinggeologist.com and there's a button at the top of the website that says uh, contact us and uh, you can, you can uh, write your, your adventures, you can upload photographs, um, you can also just email the, uh, your, your adventures and, and your ideas to travelinggeologist at gmail.com. Sounds easy enough to me. You are the original traveling geologist, or the OTG. I'm really trying to make that stick, by the way. <laughs> and I assume, and um, and I actually, you know, in fact, I know that from our many chats over the years, that you have visited and conducted fieldwork campaigns in many, many places. What are your top three fieldwork destinations and why? Ooh, that, that's tough. Um, I think... Um... On the list of the top three, I, I couldn't tell you which one is, a, is first, second, third place, but on that list would be uh, the Spirgebiet in Namibia. Um, this is in southern Namibia. Uh, this is uh, The Spirgebiet means the Forbidden Zone, uh, which is the area around the diamond mining district in southern Namibia. The Doing fieldwork in Namibia is um, one of the most spectacular things that I've ever done, uh, and I, I've been back there a couple of times. And uh, both times I went there, I had completely different experiences, and uh, but yet immense adventures. And and I, I really really love being in the uh, in the wilderness in Namibia. I think what struck me most about doing fieldwork in Namibia is um, I went one time over a week without any evidence of human civilization, no roads, no power lines, no no 
airliner, airliners flying overhead. It was just me in the desert. And, uh, and that was a really humbling experience. Um, another that I'd place on the top three is the Himalaya. And, uh, and so I've spent um, quite a bit of time in northwestern India, um, and I absolutely love being high in the mountains. And it doesn't <laughs> get any higher in it, that in the Himalaya. That's, uh, that's and funny. so I, uh, yeah, so Northwest India in uh, the Garhwal region of, of India, there's, uh, there's a, a level of wilderness that um, is sometimes hard to really understand and, and different than the wilderness that, that I experienced in Namibia because people basically live everywhere. And I remember crossing one of the highest motorable passes in Northwest India um, where we were over 6,000 meters and there were people living up there. And, uh, and now there were people that were living up there specifically associated with the Indian military, but it was incredible to see that, yeah, there were little communities even up at 6,000 meters. Um, so then the, the last place that I put on my list, oh my goodness, is probably Scotland. And, and although Scotland might not be on uh, many people's uh, must-visit list in terms of geology, but I think for me, the reason why Scotland is, holds such a special place in my heart is because it's kind of the birthplace of geology. And I remember going to Sicker Point for the first time, and it was, it was no doubt about it, it was a spiritual experience that... Uh, I, I felt a really deep connection to James Hutton and and his experience in trying to understand not only geologic processes but the time scale associated with those processes, and then from uh, from Hutton to Playfair and Geeky and Peach and Horn and just these incredible um, kind of geological fathers that really shaped the uh, the field of geology as we know it today. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for Scotland because, um, as a matter of fact, my wife is in Scotland right now um, conducting fieldwork for her uh, postdoctoral research. And uh, she has just sent me the most amazing pictures ever. And uh, she's fulfilling a lifelong dream of, um, of studying the, the rocks in Scotland. So, you know, uh, follow her on Twitter at Sylvia underscore Volante, and uh, you can also see some pretty cool pictures of the field work that she's been doing there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, the, the, the weather in Scotland is interesting because either the weather is phenomenal or the weather is absolutely terrible. There's, there's no middle ground with Scottish weather. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and so you, you kind of also have to be prepared for both ends of the spectrum. Uh, the uh, the sunny and 25 degrees and also the blowing a gale and uh, and horizontal rain. Yeah, so, it's, yeah, it's pretty dynamic place. Yeah. And um, what is the craziest thing that you ever had happen to you in the field? Well, the uh, the, the craziest thing. Oh, wow. Um, I've had lots of crazy things happen to me in the field. But um, the, the story that I'll share was one that happened um, in no northern India. And uh, this is a time where I'd been there for about three, three and a half months at this point um, during my master's research. And I was with a driver who didn't speak English and uh, he only really spoke the local language, which was Garwali. And we were in this area that was quite a politically sensitive area because it was so close to the Chinese border. 
Now, I, I had a permit, which was called the inner line permit. And so I was able to cross the inner line to approach the border and, uh, and to do geological work there. Um, and I was told that I needed to keep my permits close because um, if the military stopped me, I needed to be able to, to show them the permits so that there wouldn't be any problems. But because I'd been there for several months and I'd never been asked for my permits, I kind of forgot about it and the permits got shoved to the bottom of my bag. And, and uh, so then when we were stopped by the military, uh, we had communication problems because the military were speaking Hindi and the driver was speaking Garwali and I didn't speak Hindi and they didn't speak very good English. And, uh, and so then as they were kind of arguing with my driver, I rolled down the window to, to try and explain to them. And one of the guys reached in and just grabbed me by the shoulders and pulled me right out through the car window and put me face down in the dirt and then like felt me, uh, my pockets and emptied my pockets out to make sure I didn't have any weapons or anything. And, uh, and they were quite nervous about the pocket knife that I had in my pocket. And, and eventually I was able to explain to them that I had permits and they let me get up and find the permit out of my backpack. And, uh, and then once they read the permit and saw that everything was in order, they just let me pass like it had never happened. Like I hadn't been assaulted and just been pulled right out of the car window. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was, I think one of my most crazy experiences. Uh, yeah, that's a doozy. So um, I, I mentioned in the in the introduction that you have conducted fieldwork in almost every continent. Uh, minus, remind me again, minus, which continents have you haven't have you not visited yet? So I've not yet been to South America or to Antarctica. Man, come on, South America. We 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 need to fix that. We'll, we'll get something organized so that you can visit South America. I can guarantee that I can show you some really cool rocks in Brazil. Yes, well, I I have no doubt, and I am desperate to get to South America. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's it is a little bit embarrassing that I've done fieldwork in forty countries on five continents, but I've not yet been to. In fact, I've not even been south of the U.S. border. I've never even been to Mexico or Central America. And so something that definitely needs to be uh, remedied. Definitely. But um, having been in so many places, what are some of the highlight samples that you've collected? Oh, um, I think there's, there's a few that are, are quite special to me. Um, I collected samples of uh, coasite bearing eclogites in Norway in the Western Nice region, uh, these are these are some of the uh, deepest crustal materials uh, that uh, that have ever been found. Um, I think collecting carbonatites in in Namibia, um, really really weird volcanic rocks um, that have a lot of rare earth element mineralization. Um, but I think one of the most special rocks that that I've collected uh, was actually collected in Western Australia just uh, last year, and that was in the uh, the Jack Hills. And uh, as as you know, the Jack Hills is a special place for all Western Australians because it it uh, contains the oldest terrestrial materials on the planet. And uh, and it was such a such a treat to go to the Jack Hills and there's just so much history and so much intrigue surrounding the the not just the geology but also the history of our understanding of the earth and and how the Jack Hills has totally changed the way we understand earth history and deep time and so 
I've got a, uh, a slab of the Jack Hills quartzite um, cut and polished sitting on my desk because, uh, yeah, it's that's a pretty special place. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, this next one is particularly helpful for listeners that uh, have only just started studying geology. Um, what are some of the must-have items that you carry with you to the field? Uh, must-have items. Well, I think... Um, must-have items include uh, a good pair of boots. And uh, we're going back to the, uh, the, the, the first question that you asked me. Um, I think having wet boots is probably the worst thing that can ever happen to a field geologist. Uh, and finding a nice pair of boots that not only fit you well, but will last a long time is really, really useful. Um, in fact, I've got I've got three pairs of boots. They're the exact same type of boot, the same size, but they're different stages of wear. And so I've got I've got the oldest ones are just torn to shreds, and I only wear them when I have to like go muck out the chicken coop because they're not waterproof anymore, and the treads are almost completely flat. And then I've got the next pair that are not waterproof anymore because they've split on the seams, but they still are, they've still got good tread on them. And so those are like my dry boots that I'll take on like dry field work. And then I've got the ones that are the newest ones that are still waterproof and, uh, and still uh, are fully functional. So having a good pair of, uh, of boots is, is an absolute must. colleague from the University of Ouro Preto in Brazil, uh, Dr. Max Martins. And when I was still an undergrad, uh, he was actually my supervisor of my undergrad project. Uh, but he gave a presentation where he showed us some pictures of him uh, riding a sort of sort of this unarmed tank when he was doing field work in Russia. Wow. And I mean, I re yeah, I remember at the time thinking, man, that's some Indiana Jones type of schist. Yeah, no, seriously. Yeah, now that I'm a bit older, the only thing that I can think about is how much my back would hurt if I were to go around in a tank for a you know for several days. But um, in your case, what was your most uncommon mode of transportation in the field so far? Well, um, the uh, the most uncommon mode of transportation was horseback. And, uh, and although riding on a horse was pretty common back in the old days, um, nowadays it's not very common to, uh, to do field work on, uh, on a horse. And, uh, and I've done, I've done some field work, um, on, uh, on horseback in a couple of places in, uh, West Africa when, uh, we were collecting samples around, uh, a, a relatively young impact crater, about a million year old impact crater called the Bosumtri crater in Ghana. And then, uh, and then also in northern China, uh, in Inner Mongolia, the Inner Mongolian province of northern China, where we were collecting Paleoproterozoic uh, metamorphic rocks and and uh, meta uh, meta igneous rocks, and so doing horseback, doing fieldwork on horseback is is kind of a special thing because it's one of those things where uh, you can't just turn the key and press the accelerator. You've got to then like take care of the animals and you've got to make sure that the animals are uh, taken care of and that they're, they're happy and healthy. Um, and then the other thing is you can't just jump off your horse and then just walk away. You've got to, you got to actually take care of it. 
And I can't tell you the number of times where um, I'll ju- I would stop like a truck and I'd just jump out of the truck and just leave the truck on the side of the road and I'd be gone then for several hours. Um, but uh, you can't really do that with a horse. You can't just jump off the horse and then just leave it there. And uh, so, yeah, I would say horseback is definitely the most unconventional uh, mode of transport that I've had in fieldwork. Yeah, you you can't really uh, leave the horse be unless you are the lonely rider and then you can just, you know, whistle him up. That's right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So mine wasn't necessarily uncommon, but uh, but it was definitely unusual and and also a bit stupid. Um, So I did field work in the middle of Brazil with an old truck that didn't have any brakes. Um, We had a local that would drive us around and, you know, luckily he was very, very good at stopping the truck using only lower gears. Oh and, my goodness. Uh, yeah. But, you know, again, like it was a pretty remote location, so there wasn't like any issues with traffic or anything like that. But our biggest challenge was when he, um, we had to embark on a ferry. And I'm using quote marks because it's just the wooden floating device that barely fit the truck. Right. Uh, so usually you drive up to it and then you hit the brakes right before you go out the other end. Right. But we didn't have that luxury. So oh, we no. basically had to build some obstacles with some of the larger samples that uh, that we collected. And we were very lucky that that actually worked because, you know, we could have ended up strained in the river. Seriously. Um, and honestly, this is a true story. My buddy Jamal, he can vouch for me. But yeah, I, I'm not sure I would have done that nowadays when I'm a bit older and wiser. You know? Yes, well, I think, that, I think we're, we're all that same way where there are many things that we did when we were 25 that uh, we wouldn't do anymore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, true. Another really cool thing that happened in this trip uh, is that, you know, of course, uh, we talked about things that you need to bring into the field. And we were always prepared with uh, supplies. So we had some classic fieldwork snacks, you know, like trail mix, energy bars, what have you. But even though we had prepared that, we would always end up having lunch in someone's house every day. Now, this is a, yeah. and, And, you know, this is a very poor region of Brazil. But there is always someone that insisted that we had lunch with them. And refusing it would be actually offensive. And that's one of my favorite things about fieldwork is the opportunity that it gives us to meet another reality and really get to know the lives of the locals, uh, of the places that you end up working in. Uh, It was something that really stuck with me. You know, the fact that these people, they live very, very simple lives, but they were so welcoming and and they could not accept us not having a warm meal. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah, and although they never met us before, you know, they insisted on it. And this is the kind of experience that really changes, you know, like really sticks mm. with us. Yeah. Can you think of an experience in the field that had such an impact on you that made you change even just a little bit about yourself? Yes. Oh, for sure. My goodness. Um, and uh, I'm going to go back to uh, to India for this one. Um, I, uh, for part of the time that I was in India, my, uh, my wife joined me and uh, we had only been married for about a year at that point. And and this was her first time out of North America. So this was a pretty big shift for her to um, go from, from North America to northern India. And, uh, and we, we were having a great time, and we were camping up in, up in the mountains. Um, but uh, 
Unfortunately, my my wife was getting a bit of altitude sickness, and uh, and so we were having a, a, some struggles to uh, just keep ourselves sane and keep ourselves healthy. And as we were as we were coming into this one village, um, my uh, my wife said, um, "Where are we going to stay tonight?" And my first thought was, "Oh, well, we will just stay. We'll just we'll just find a flat spot outside the village, and we'll just set up our tents and and sleep there." And uh, and, and I could tell that my wife was a little bit, uh, that she wasn't terribly comfortable. And, uh, and, and I can, I can understand the situation. We were up at about 4,500 meters. So it was pretty high and she, it, it, it the sun was starting to go down and, uh, and one of the locals had, had kind of seen us walking around and, and came out to ask what we were doing. And they, they didn't speak very good English, but enough that they could understand that we were, we were looking at the rocks and, uh, and, uh, the guys, the guy kind of, I think noticed that my wife, Camille, um, wasn't, wasn't doing too great. And, uh, and he said, please, you need to come with me. And, and I didn't quite understand what he, what he wanted or what, why we needed to come with him. But but I was just like, all right, well, it's towards the end of the day, so we'll we'll go ahead and we'll we'll walk along. And and so we followed him over and he showed us to his house and then uh and then basically just opened up a, a side door and there was just a bedroom and uh and he said, Here, you need to stay here tonight. And uh and it was it was totally unasked for. Um, and he, he didn't even ask, where are you staying? There was no, there was no, um, presumption that we were going to pay him or anything. He simply just said, look, I can, I can see that, that you might want a bed and I've got a bed to offer. And, uh, and, and I mean, as you've said, uh, in places in Brazil where you've done field work, where people that didn't have a lot, they were still just so generous and so willing to give. And, um, that has been my experience time and time again. It doesn't matter whether I was in India or China or Oman, or even in really rural New Zealand, um, there, the, the Maori people would just invite us over and, uh, and we would have, um, a, a nice Maori barbecue. And, and so I think that doing, doing field work for me is not just about going to interesting places and collecting interesting rocks, but it really is about connecting with um, people in the different ways that they connect with the earth. Okay, Spencer, uh, I mean, I've had so far um, a really good time talking to you. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, we've talked so much already about all of these um, subjects, but uh, I just think that you are an endless well of uh, good fieldwork stories. To finish off uh, our interview today, uh, we have this tradition where we ask every guest the same three questions. So my first question to you is, how did you first decide to become a geologist? Wow. Well, um, I, I've been asked this question a number of times, and uh, the answer really remains the same. Uh, I was born a geologist, and uh, and I, I like to I like to think of it this way because I was born um, in in Utah, and I grew up in a in a small town uh, in southern Utah, surrounded by the mountains, and uh, I uh, I spent my childhood. Um, hiking and climbing and and 
picking up rocks and uh, and so when when it came time for me to decide what I wanted to study uh, in uh, in college, I, I just kind of thought, well, I don't want to be in an office. And what can I do that would allow me to to maintain a connection with the outside? And the the obvious question was just geology. And then when I took my first geology class, it was so clear that this is exactly like, uh, this is exactly what I was needing to do. This is exactly who I was. Uh, and it was really, really refreshing to come to that realization that I'd, I'd kind of discovered my identity and, and, uh, the, the person that I, that I was deep inside was now able to really come out and to shine forth. And so, uh, I think my, my childhood and upbringing definitely put me on the path to become a geologist. Uh, what are some of the specifics of the research that you're conducting now? Well, um, one of the things that we're trying to uh, unravel right now are the major geological and biospheric and atmospheric changes that occurred across the Archean Proterozoic boundary. So this is about 2.5 billion years ago. There were some really dramatic things happening in uh, in the Earth, and uh the I've got a project right now where I've got a couple of students looking at um, potential connections between changes in mantle dynamics and uh, crustal heat flow that then influenced the composition of sedimentary rocks and potentially even uh, laid the groundwork for uh, biological radiation and, and evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis, which obviously then led to the uh, atmospheric oxygenation or, or what we call the uh, great oxygenation event. And so I'm, I'm quite interested to understand the interplay between the, uh, the mantle and the deep crust with then these uh, surficial processes. Yeah, and you got yourself a couple of Brazilian students, so you're definitely setting yourself up for success. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly. Uh, and then finally, our final question is, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geology? Oh, my goodness. Um, I actually don't know. You don't do anything I, else I, besides I geology? I don't do anything else. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm teased relentlessly by... Uh, by my family because I don't have any hobbies or my hobbies are separating zircon and, uh, and <laughs> shooting the laser. Um, my, I, I really, I really enjoy photography and, uh, and I enjoy photography, uh, especially when it's related to geology. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do a lot of that. Um, I think another thing that I really enjoy doing specifically with uh, my kids is, uh, fishing. And so we, we have a good time fishing. Cool. That's very Ron Swanson. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's it. That's our episode for today. Uh, I think this was a, a great conversation with a lot of uh, interesting stories, some lessons to take home. And I hope that uh, our listeners will, will enjoy applying some of your um, advices uh, into their field campaigns in the future. Well, thanks, Victor. This was a lot of fun. I really had a good time. All right, cool. We did it. Wow, this was a great episode. If you want to find out more about the research that Spencer and his colleagues are producing, you can do so at tectonochemistry.com. Also, make sure you follow at Traveling Geologist on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
and visit travelinggeologist.com to read stories about fieldwork and research from geologists all across the globe. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. Okay, guys, I'll see you next time. And remember, keep up your appetite for knowledge. Got it? Appetite. Appetite.